This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Delegates from over 200 countries are in Poland's coal country working on the next step of battling climate change. The officials are working on a so-called rule book to help their countries monitor progress in cutting emissions. The 24th annual COP conference, or Conference of the Parties, is supposed to agree to the pathways to make the Paris Agreement operational. The Trump administration, you may remember, said they were going to pull out of the 2015 agreement, even though they have yet to do so. The White House sent lower-ranking officials to Poland as they are trying to water down the language used in the report. With more on this conference and the rule book, we are joined by in-studio Eric Ortz, professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School, also director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. Also with us on the phone, Dr. Felix Mormon, law professor at Texas A&M University and a faculty fellow at Stanford University's Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. And also with us, Michael Gerard, professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, as well as director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. Eric, great seeing you as always. Good to be Thank here. You. Felix, Michael, as always, great to have you both on the phone. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Great to be here. So I guess, uh, Michael, let's start out with the impact uh, of the reporting that we're seeing uh, coming uh, into this, uh, that we could be looking at a three-degree increase in terms of uh, global warming, which, from what I understand, is is a little bit warmer than maybe what some people had expected. Yeah, well, the the Paris goal was two degrees centigrade uh, uh, as a maximum, trying to keep it down to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The voluntary pledges that all countries in the world put on the table add up to about three and a three to four degrees centigrade, which would be catastrophic. And many countries, including the U.S., are not on target even to meet the Paris pledges. So it's not happy news. Yep, Felix. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this doesn't come as a huge surprise, to be honest, because we've had for years very knowledgeable climate scientists warn that everybody's talking about two degrees and we may already be past that point, but maybe increasingly difficult to get us back into that range. So I've heard projections as high as four degrees, and this is a dynamic space. So even if the commitments made back in 2015 had indeed locked us into a course for two degrees at the time, there's no guarantee that that would still be the case today or five years from today. So, so how, but I agree, this is a this is a space that is cause for concern. So, Felix, how important is putting together this rule book, and how challenging do you think it is to try and keep all of these countries in line with what potentially the rules should be? It's inc- extremely important because, as Michael already pointed out, these are voluntary commitments. So, unless we find some way of uh, putting some teeth into this. It's going to be difficult to ensure that every country actually follows through with their commitments. And think of the the dynamics of politics, the fact that governments change, that even if these voluntary commitments were made in good faith at the time, the next party in government might, might feel different. And so there has to be a mechanism that offers some sense of binding future governments, future generations. And originally the idea was, hey, let's monitor Let's make sure that we essentially are each other's checks and balances, that we make sure that there's, if necessary, a mechanism for, and, you know, publications have described this as public shaming, if need be. But that's why the rule book is so important, because it's not just about enforcement. It's about making sure we all monitor using the same metrics, because otherwise, what are the reports from each country worth if they differ and we're comparing apples to oranges? Eric? 
Yeah, I think there's some progress uh, in Poland with respect to the kind of the lower level rule book. And, and we need to fill out what are the details of the Paris Agreement and how are you going to actually assure that people are reporting, get monitoring, et cetera, to assure long-term progress. But the the biggest disappointment, and this is no surprise to anyone following these issues, is that the United States has basically thrown the gear in reverse under the current administration. And you had, under the Paris Agreement, you had a president who was leading the world in coming to an agreement where every country in the world, almost I think there may be one or two exceptions, and even they came on board, were in favor of, of recognizing the science, it's basic science that's agreed everywhere at this point, except in in, um, in uh, you know in the United States and in in uh, in a party that's in power, and that has to that's basically the uh, the bottom line. Now we 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 also had some in, uh, interesting news out of Poland where investors have come together representing about 32 trillion dollars uh, in investing and 450, 415 different major investors, and they are deciding to push this issue, but you have to go even further than that. That's a lot of, uh, lot of money because at the end of the day, and for, uh, for listeners who might not be new to this issue, the basic problem is that our current economic system does not take into account what economists call the externality of uh, carbon and its equivalents being put into the atmosphere. So right. if you do not have a way to put that externality into the economic system that we are investing in, investing by, having business, uh, have, having business operate by, they do not take into account this long-term, this other, this other issue, and, the, and, they, and it's not even long-term anymore, right? If you look at yeah. the wildfires, the droughts, the hurricanes, um, the heat waves, this is not some uh, scientific fantasy of the future, which had, had been portrayed maybe 10 or 20 years ago. This is a problem that's now it is going to hit us even more severely in the future. And what we really need is a Sputnik moment of finally deciding, okay, this science is telling us this. Yeah. And if we don't do this, the Russians take over, right? That was the Sputnik <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> right. If, we yeah. don't, we, we're, yeah. if we don't take science seriously, yeah. this is what happens. And when it's bad for our future, we have to similarly at a global level. And many countries are already there. And we are there, really. If you take a poll, everyone... A vast majority of American, the American public believes this. Yeah. And I think if you take a poll, most businesses believe this. But the problem is those businesses that are going to be most hurt by putting that externality into a, 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 what, what, what we call a price in carbon, they are less motivated to get political than the fossil fuel companies who right now want to burn it. Yeah. And right now, if, you, if you're a hard-nosed um, Wall Street investor, as we produce here at the Wharton School, you um, made money if you said, you know what, you know, alternative fuels are not going to be that great once Trump gets in because it's going to get rolled back. Yeah. And if you burn all this, you make money, right, as long as the externality of, what of, the, of the climate impact of that is not taken into account. And we don't do that at a global level and at a national level. You're going over the cliff, and that's where we are now. And that's uh, as um, Michael is indicating. We have studies now that are indicating it's not just a two degree uh, uh, target, two degree centigrade target. We need to actually move it down to 1.5, yeah. and that was the big uh, that was the big problem. There's this is a widely accepted scientific report. It was commissioned yeah. by the UN to let's that what happens at 1.5. Do we have to make that the new goal? 
And everyone agrees to that except the United States, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Russia decided not to. All you had to do is like welcome the report. You're not. There wasn't any requirement of we will do X. It was only we welcome the scientific community's effort in presenting this report. And even though we just had from the Trump administration itself a report saying yes. This is a really serious problem. You have, what, 12, a dozen agencies working on this required report from Congress. You still have the United States representative coming in and saying, no, we don't welcome a scientific report. So that's that's the real it – is, it is at the end. There's no way around it. It's a political problem, well, and you're not going to make success unless you solve that. Michael, the, the language part of it obviously I think is important to note, and Eric did as well. Because of a variety of factors and because of the fact that the, the current administration just seems to want to deny as much as they possibly can uh, the, the science that is out there. Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's a national embarrassment. Uh, the, the science uh, couldn't be clearer that uh, climate change is, is happening. It's getting worse. Humans are mostly uh, responsible for it. It is very encouraging that these large investors came out with a statement that was um, that was referenced that uh, supporting the Paris Agreement and calling for even greater ambition than the Paris Agreement called for so that we can be closer to 1.5. It, it's even more impressive for that subset of the investors who said that they're no longer going to be financing coal projects or certain other dirty fossil fuel projects. I think what we really need is is not not only the uh, the useful language endorsing the the goals but also action by the investors to move their their money away from fossil fuels and toward renewables and energy efficiency and the other things that we need for the energy uh, transition. Uh, the energy transition promises to be the biggest uh, business opportunity for the many decades to come. We need to build an absolutely jaw-dropping of new wind and solar and storage and transmission and, and all those other things in order to move away from fossil fuels. It's a tremendous business opportunity. As um, as Eric said, uh, if we don't internalize the cost to a price on carbon in some fashion, the transition will happen a lot slower, and the business opportunities will be a lot uh, will be a lot lower. And so, a, a price on carbon of some sort is really a very important part of the mix. Then, what do you think comes out of of this conference right now? Well, I think that we'll have some details on on, on the nitty gritty of of the. Um, uh, uh, Paris uh, pledges, uh, but it's really ultimately a matter of domestic politics. Uh, the the agreement, the Paris Agreement, fundamentally has almost no teeth, and that is not a that is not an accident. Uh, President Obama, while supporting Paris, realized that if it had, uh, if it were actually binding and enforceable in a meaningful way, he would need to get the ratification of the Senate, which then and now is not possible. We're not going to get 67 votes in the Senate to support this. So it is an intentionally uh, fairly toothless, aspirational um, uh, document that is full of, of, of process and good intention and so forth. But unless individual countries actually want to carry it out. It's not going to work. Felix, your thoughts? So I, I want to get back to, to the role of investment here because it's such a great and, and salient statement that's come out of a corner where I think a lot of people didn't expect it because the traditional narrative has been that, oh, it's capitalism that's gotten us into this mess. Um, in part to Eric's point that 
we've allowed for the cost, the social cost of carbon emissions to be externalized for all too long. And suddenly it seems as though those who you know may have been reaping some of the benefits, who may have been driving this process for years, are coming around, at least as far as these 415 investors are concerned, managing $32 trillion worth of assets. So that's a huge, staggering number. And I think it's great to see also to to Michael's earlier point about the need to, to shift investments away from fossil fuels into clean energy technologies. That's been happening since 2011. And, and it was interestingly the, the Ivy League, the top university endowments that started that process, Stanford, Harvard, and others. So you could literally say the smart move money has been moving in that direction for some time now. Uh, and I think at this point it's $6 trillion, not $32 trillion, but $6 trillion worth of assets that have committed to pulling out or have already pulled out of fossil fuels. So those are great numbers. What gives me pause in this context, however, is the perceived need by investors who command such staggering amounts of wealth to engage the policymakers of this world. And I think it speaks to the magnitude of the problem. The fact that even if you control incredible amounts of money, you need policy guidance because this is such a huge collective action problem that even if you control 30 plus trillion dollars, and by the way, that's one and a half times the size of the U.S. economy in 2017, just to give perspective on this. So even if you control this, you think you're pretty powerful, yet you feel the need to have policy guidance, policy leadership on this subject, because it is such a huge Herculean task. Yeah, I, well, I, ag- I agree with that. Let me let me just give some perspective, though, about the, you know, it sounds like a big number when investors are coming together and saying that they're going to invest in this way, and it is, and, it, and it's a good, it's, it's, uh, it's good news. However, I, I really agree with Felix's point that, and I pressed actually a, a UBS executive who was here at Wharton uh, recently on this, that you can't just throw money at the problem and then somehow that's going to, it might be the case in many in many situations, solar is outperforming coal in many respects. But what you have is an uneven playing field where there are lots of countries that are basically subsidizing fossil fuel to begin with. So it's not even that it's a level playing with to, field to begin with. And then you don't have, uh, you have an uneven uh, program of, of, of government encouragement. So in fact, the truth is that a lot of investors lost their shirts who uh, looked at the future and said, well, it's going to be a green future. I'm going to throw, I'm going to invest in this alternative energy sources, et cetera. But then when you have the political situation turn on them, yeah. they lost money. There, a lot of those people lost money. So just putting a lot of money into the market doesn't work unless the market <laughs> responds and you make money in, in doing that. Otherwise, you can throw a lot of money in the market. And if it's good intentions, but the economic fundamentals are not going in that direction, you're not going to make money. So and one other, one other point to make here, there's a lot of uh, companies and investors who are pushing to put a materiality criteria on carbon emissions, et cetera. And that's a right. good thing to have that footprint. But the reality is that the hard-nosed investor, if you're looking at ExxonMobil or the other, if you're looking at a lot of these energy companies, they are not discounting for keeping that in the ground. What that means is there's a lot of smart money that's saying, we are going to burn this under our current trajectory. Yeah. And then if you listen to the scientists over here, they're, gonna, they're saying, well, it's going to cause all these extra uh, damaging effects. 
But if you don't, that's the, and I think all three of us agree, that's the necessity to get this external cost of climate change into the actual pricing mechanisms. Yeah. Then you do make money if you're an investor, right? So then if you are a, but the bottom line here is I think most economists um, and policy analysts on this area agree, you have to get the the policy right. And that means yeah. you have to influence the governments. It's not yeah. enough to say we're going to invest all this money in a nice way, even if you're universities. <laughs> and you say we're going to be great, Stanford, and I think it's true, Stanford ended up making a very good investment by divesting from coal because coal, but the reason is not that the policies are all changing. The reason is coal is not really as economical as it used to be. So you're you're making it. But what you really need to do to kill coal, to put it just bluntly, is that you have to have policy dis- agreements that say, you know, it's just too dirty. We can't afford to continue burning coal. We have to have phase it out, and it can be gradually phased out, but we have to have reasonable government policies. And, the, and, the, and again, just to go back to the main point, the fossil fuel companies in the United States, at least, have won. They basically have reversed any kind of positive climate policies that we've had. And as long as that's the reality, then you're, if you're an investor, you can't fight that, right? Yeah. Because the cost yeah. doesn't get internalized. So it really does, you know, it. I would I, when I went first went to the got into this area I went to the work, work, the Earth Summit in Rio, and George H W Bush was extremely impressive at that and was a leader in setting the tone of the beginning of global regulation. The Paris Agreement actually traces all the way back, back to, to George yep. Herbert Walker Bush leading. Um, at that time, it was the most heads of state ever assembled in any area who were saying, "Look, biodiversity and cli- climate change is real. We need to have a global approach." Today, the Republican Party, it just, there's just no two ways of saying it, is completely captured by the other side. So instead of having a bipartisan way to handle this, it's become uh, us versus them. And you can we can analyze why that happened. Maybe the Democrats and Al Gore were part of it, like the reason. But the reality is today, that's the reality. And until hopefully the Republican Party will start to shift on this issue to meet the majority opinion of most people. But I think what has to happen is business has to help take a positive well, role because they're just yeah. saying the fossil fuel companies, you can see why they are taking a positive role. Their whole uh, their whole lives, uh, their whole business model depends on it. And it's uh, I think I've quoted him on here before, but uh, it reminds me of Upton Sinclair's quote <laughs> that it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not surprising that you have those uh, business interests who are trying to capture the process because they don't want to have they don't want to deal with the problem. But that means then that the other businesses who are out here cannot just say we're going to have some nice investments and we're going to do this. They also have to get involved in the political process as well. So I think that's you know that's at least my analysis. Michael, let's uh, let's go to the leadership side of this for a second because I think a lot of people believe that when the when the Paris Accord was put together uh, that the United States was going to be the lead in this. President Obama obviously was one of the people very much involved in this, but right now it doesn't seem like that we have. A, a a leader of a country that is willing to be that person to be the leader of this process. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the, the great tragedies in the U.S. is the, uh, the businesses need our, not only policy, but they need consistency of policy. But here, every 
four or eight years, we flipped. We went from um, uh, Clinton Gore, who wanted to act on climate change, to uh, Bush Jr. and Cheney, who didn't, to Obama and Biden, who, who did, and now Pence and, and Trump, who, who don't. And so uh, without that kind of consistency, it's really difficult for businesses to make the investments that are necessary. We have, we see a similar pattern in in Canada and the U.K. and Australia, we, we see flipping back and forth of those governments' policies um, as well. And, it, and so it makes it very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, Europe has been uh, weakened by by Brexit and the crises over migration and, and so forth. We don't have the same kind of strong international leadership that uh, um, that we once had. Uh, Macron from France is doing what he can, but he himself has a lot of domestic problems. Yeah. So we don't have global leadership. Well, and Felix, part of the, what, speaking about Emmanuel Macron, is that in the most recent, he wanted to you know put in this fuel tax, and that was seen as something that a lot of the citizens of, of France could not deal with, and that's one of the reasons why we had the Yellow Vest protest, along with other economic issues in the country. Yes. So I think the the, the fuel tax is a great example of how a lot of these measures, it's nice for us to hypothesize about the path forward you know, on this show, but they will be painful for many of us. And, and not everybody, the surveys have shown this time and again in the United States and elsewhere, that even among the large segment of the population that acknowledges climate change as a reality, that shows concern over climate change, the willingness to pay questions always fall way short of that concern. So, in other words, when it's time to put our money where our mouths are, um, many of us just hesitate. And I think a lot of this is really about not fully understanding the reality and that we don't really have much of a choice. And, you know, if you drive from A to B for work uh, every day and suddenly your commute costs are going up 20, 25 percent, that has an impact on your bottom line. And, and you won't be happy. And, of course, there's also, again, the collective action problem. The French, you know, citizenry says, hey – I mean, if I live closer to the border, I'd go drive over to Spain and fill up cheaper there, um, or I might drive over to, you know, another neighboring country. So why isn't everybody getting together? And that's why, no matter the actual language, the signaling effect of summits such as the Conference of the Parties is so important. Because right. it's a lot easier for policymakers, for heads of government to sell these kinds of painful policies if they can say, hey, we're in this together. And by the way, it's also not going to hurt our international competitiveness, right. which is, of course, a key issue in the United States and elsewhere. Well, and it's another, uh, just to build on that, there's another, uh, it, it's an important issue. How, what are the policies? Because it's easy to say, as we've been saying, you know, let's tax uh, carbon. But then if you set it up so that it's just hitting the lower uh, the lower echelons of the of the population, there's going to be a reaction. Sure. And the same thing yep. happened if you look at the politics here, right? Uh, the Obama policies were really hurting a lot of p- people in the Midwest, et cetera. And that was a big issue with yep. uh with uh, in the Clinton-Trump election, that's one of the reasons Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, West Virginia, those states go the other way. Wisconsin so, too, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what you need then is a broad policy. A lot of people agree this is a problem, but then what's the broad policy? There's ideas of a Green New Deal, for example. But what will that be? How is it? 
how do you actually make most everyday people better off yeah. with the policies that are going to address climate change? And I think until we put that all together, it's going to be hard to get a general agreement uh, on, how, on, a, on a way forward. Michael and Felix, for both of you as we end this, uh, Michael, I'll start with you. Are you more or less optimistic in the last three years since, since the Paris Accord came about? Oh, I'd say I'm considerably less optimistic. Uh, there is good news in the plummeting price of renewables, of, of wind and solar and storage and so forth. So that is good. But on a net basis, I can't say that we're overall moving in the right direction. Felix? I tend to agree with Michael. But to me, there's a silver lining in the sense that the uh, inertia, all the issues that happen at the international level have gone to fuel even further policy action at the subnational levels. So one really bright spot in all of this was the uh, Global Climate Action Summit that California hosted back in September of this year, where the state of California invited other subnational entities, whether it was municipalities, states, etc., who were interested in and potential leaders in policy action on climate change. Now, that's not a first best approach, because ideally we would have the heads of government, we would have the international community rally together to tackle this problem. But it is heartening to see that there is a almost grassroots from the ground up movement that can at least pick up some of the slack. Great having you all with us today. Eric, great seeing you. Thank Good you for to coming see you too. in. Felix, Michael, thank you for your time on the phone today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. Eric Ortz from the Wharton School joining me here in studio. Felix Mormon from Texas A&M University on the phone along with Michael Gerard from Columbia University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.